Chapter 8 of David Hume and His Influence on Philosophy and Theology. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. David Hume and His Influence on Philosophy and Theology by James Orr. Chapter 8 Hume on Substance, the Material World, the Ego. The two great metaphysical categories are those of causality and substance. On them rests the entire structure of physical science. The natural philosopher must assume the unconditional validity of the principle of causation. Not less implicitly must he assume the principle of the indestructibility of substance. All his reasonings and calculations would else be abortive. The skeptic, therefore, who can subvert these two important categories by showing them to be chimerical and unreal, may justly claim to have overturned the whole fabric of knowledge. It has been shown how Hume attempted to achieve this with regard to the category of cause. It is now to be considered how it fares with his assault on the second of these categories, that of substance. Substance we found to be one of the ideas which caused Locke particular difficulty. He was unwilling to part with it. He upheld to the last its validity, but he could give no intelligible account of it. The senses reveal to us only qualities of objects, colors, sounds, tastes, hardness, etc. They tell us nothing of an unknown something in which these qualities inhere. Hume was less considerate and more consistent. I would fain ask those philosophers, he says, who found so much of their reasonings on the distinction of substance and accident, and imagine we have clear ideas of each, whether the idea of substance be derived from the impressions of sensation and reflection, if it be conveyed to us by our senses, I ask which of them, and after what manner. If it be perceived by the eyes, it must be a color, if by the ears a sound, if by the palate a taste, and so of the other senses. But I believe that none will assert that substance is either a color, or sound, or a taste. The idea of substance must therefore be derived from the impression of reflection really exist. But the impressions of reflection resolve themselves into our passions and emotions, none of which can possibly represent a substance. We have, therefore, no idea of substance distinct from that of a collection of particular qualities, nor have we any other meaning when we either talk or reason concerning it. The idea of a substance, as well as that of a mode, is nothing but a collection of simple ideas that are united by the imagination and have a particular name assigned to them by which we are able to recall, either to ourselves or others, that collection. Language of Dr. Thomas Brown is almost identical with that of Hume on this subject. So, too, is that of J.S. Mill and his logic, though in his examination of Hamilton he is forced to add something to his view by the introduction of permanent possibilities of sensation. In Mr. Spencer, the substance expresses the persistence of the unknowable power, force, which is the ultimate reality behind both matter and mind. This denial of the idea of substance by Hume leads naturally to certain important skeptical results. 1. And first, as the consequence of this denial, there falls necessarily the idea of an independently existing material world. Here also we saw that Locke was guilty of several patent inconsistencies, assuming, to account for his ideas, a world of objects outside the mind. He began by taking this external world for granted, and only when his theory was completed considered the question of his right to make so vast an assumption. Hume proceeds more regularly 
and examines at length the question of the veracity of the senses in Part Four, Section 2 of his treatise. He assumes as a point which admits of no doubt that men do believe in the existence of body, that is, in its continued and distinct existence, and proposes to investigate the causes wherefore they do so. The opinion must arise either from the senses, the reason, or the imagination. But it cannot arise from the senses, for these give only isolated perceptions and say nothing of existences which lie beyond. As little can this opinion arise from reason, for reason teaches first that nothing can ever be present to the mind but its own perceptions, and second, that perceptions can only exist while they are actually perceived, so far we have little more than a reproduction of the Berkeleyan idealism. To reconcile these contradictions, philosophers, e.g. Locke, have feigned a world of objects which lie beyond ideas and produce them. But this is not only in itself absurd and opposed to popular belief, but it is incapable of proof. The vulgar idea of the natural world is simply that of the continued existence of the sense perceptions themselves. The belief must therefore be due to imagination. Hume accordingly attempts to show how it can be accounted for by the principles of association, cooperating with the coherence and constancy of the sense appearances, and with a propensity to feign continued existence in the case of interrupted perceptions. The result is that we are compelled by irresistible instinct to believe in the independent existence of material things, while, on the other hand, the slightest reflection demonstrates this belief to be an illusion. The opinion of external existence, if rested on natural instinct, is contrary to reason, and if referred to reason, is contrary to natural instinct and carries no rational evidence with it to convince an impartial inquiry. It is very remarkable that when Hume is dwelling on the fact that all these objects, mountains, houses, trees, etc., to which we attribute continued existence have a particular constancy, which distinguishes them from the impressions whose existence depends on our perceptions, and that even in their changes they preserve a coherence and have a regular dependence on each other, the fire, e.g., we left burning, is extinct by the time we return. He does not perceive that he is already assuming the existence of that very objective order for which it is his business to account. It is not as fleeting and perishing internal impressions that our perceptions exhibit this constancy and coherence, but as presenting objects to the mind under independent relations of coexistence, succession, and causation. 2. But second, rejecting the notion of an external world, have we any better ground for asserting the reality, permanence, and distinct existence of the mind or self? The discussion of this subject is omitted in the later inquiry, but the question is fully gone into in the treatise, section 6, of personal identity and elsewhere. In these places, Hume clearly shows that on his original principles, we must dismiss the idea of a self, as well as that of material objects, what we call a mind, he says, is nothing but a heap or collection of different perceptions united together by certain relations and supposed, though falsely, to be endowed with perfect simplicity and identity. More expressly, setting aside some metaphysicians of this kind, I may venture to affirm of the rest of mankind that they are nothing but a bundle or collection of different perceptions which succeed each other with an inconceivable rapidity and are in a perpetual flux and movement. Mind is a kind of theater where several perceptions successfully make their appearance, pass, repass, glide away, and mingle in an infinite variety of postures and situations. There is properly no simplicity in it at one time, 
nor identity indifferent, whatever natural propension we may have to imagine that simplicity and identity. The comparison of the theatre must not mislead us. They are the successive perceptions only that constitute the mind, nor have we the most distant notion of the place where these scenes are represented, or of the materials of which it is composed. In this uncompromising theory, Hume passes far beyond the Berkeley, though there are indications that the latter had also the extreme position before his mind. It was these daringly skeptical conclusions which, as we formerly saw, awakened Reed, and prompted him to a reinvestigation of the principles from which they followed. Reed, standing on the ground of common sense, naturally and justly regarded the attempt to disprove the permanent reality of a self in consciousness as the reductio ad absurdum of all philosophy. His reply, however, was not as profound as it might have been. He could only fall back on the resistless conviction possessed by every man that the thoughts of which he is conscious belong to one and the same thinking principle, what he calls himself, a conviction which Hume did not deny. The true answer would have been to show, as a previous chapter indicated, that without the presupposition of this permanent self or ego in consciousness, be no consciousness at all. This was the irrefutable principle enunciated by Kant in his deduction of the categories, and in light of it, the untenable character of Hume's position is very apparent. Hume, in the above passage, makes self nothing but a heap, or bundle, or collection of different perceptions, united together by certain relations. But what unites the perceptions in one consciousness? It cannot be the perceptions themselves, for these are fleeting and perishing and each has knowledge only of its own existence. What then is it which binds perceptions into their several bundles, or who or what perceives the relations between them? How, e.g., is perception A known to belong to bundle A rather than to bundles B or C? How can the individual even appear to himself as a unity? There is no answer to these questions on the principles of Hume. None, perhaps, even on the principles of Mr. Spencer whose aggregates of states of consciousness bear a doubtful resemblance to Hume's bundles. We have only to go back to Hume's own sentences to see how inevitably the we slips in, if only in the natural propension we have to imagine simplicity and identity. Mr. Mill, indeed, felt the force of some of these difficulties, but his series of feelings, aware of itself as past and future, only made the position more hopeless than ever. As he himself put it, we are reduced to the alternative of believing that the mind or ego is something different from any series or feelings or possibility of them, or of accepting the paradox that something which X hypothesis is, but a series of feelings, can be aware of itself as a series. It does not destroy the value of this deduction of the reality of the ego and consciousness that, under the influence of his peculiar idealism, Kant refused to identify this I with the noumenal self, or to permit the application of it to the categories. The great point against Hume is to show that there is an I at all in consciousness, as distinct from the particular impressions or ideas. It may be a fair question whether substance, which with Kant is a category of nature, is the best term to apply to a spiritual subject like the self. There need be no controversy on a question of mere nomenclature. The essential thing is the admission of a thinking principle which abides one and the same with the changing states of consciousness, knows them as its own states, relates them to itself, to one another, and to objects. Hume said, I never can catch myself at any time without a perception. 
to which Professor Calderwood very appositely retorted that it was enough if he could catch himself with one. This is the self, of which each one of us is conscious, and which we cannot think without assuming. The consciousness of personal identity may arise through memory, in comparison of the present state of self with the past state, but it is not through memory, as is sometimes assumed, that personal identity is constituted. The reverse is the truth, for it is only as I am one and the same person throughout that I retain the memory of past acts, and am able to recognize them as imaged in consciousness, my very own. Reverting to the question of the reality of an external world, which in its connection with the theory of perception has always been the crux of philosophy, it is probably again to Kant that we must look for the deepest vindication, not certainly of the independent existence of the world, but of the rational character and necessity of the principle of substance implied in our apprehension of it. It has been shown in the previous discussion that the question of self and that of the reality of an objective world are far from unrelated, that they are, in fact, but different sides of the same question. There is no consciousness of self which does not include, as its inseparable correlative, consciousness of an other than self, which the mind grows to apprehend as a world of objects, with which it stands in closest relations, alike as receiving impressions from it, and as itself acting upon it and affecting changes in it. This, in fact, Hume admits under the name of vulgar belief, but it is to be observed that, apart from vulgar belief and speaking purely as a philosopher, he is compelled continually to make the same acknowledgment. His pages, as has been shown, are full of language which has no meaning except on the assumption that there is a world of objects, a succession of events, a course of nature, different and distinguishable from the subjective course of thought and feeling. It is for the constitution of such a world that Kant is able to show the indispensableness and a priori character of the principle of substance. In the view of Hume, substance is a fictitious idea, the imaginary support of qualities, perceptions, states of consciousness, which are given in heaps, or bundles, as others would say groups, without any such suggestion of invisible support. But the question is, are the objects we perceive cognized as mere bundles of perceptions, or in Mr. Spencer's phrase, vivid states of consciousness? Is it not the very idea of an object world that it is conceived of as having a subsistence, connection, modes of action, and successions of its own, that it goes its own way in obedience to its own laws, not necessarily in independence of all thought, but independently, at least, of my individual knowledge and experience of it? The question is not how a bundle of perceptions is held together in the mind, but how a world of the kind now described can exist. Kant fixes on the true idea of substance as that of a permanent subsisting in the midst of change, and proves, we think irrefutably, that this idea is involved in the very possibility of such experience as we have. He does not, like him, raise the question as to whether we have a knowledge of an objective order, but, starting from the fact of such an order as given an experience, he asks only what principles of rational connection are implied in it, and finds the principle of substance to be one of them. This important position of Kant deserves further elucidation. Others besides him have seen the need of explaining the permanent in experience, but the theories they frame to account for it would be less plausible if they paid more attention to the fact of change, which Kant emphasizes. Mr. Mill, e.g., supposes that, having found by long experience, 
group of attributes regularly appearing under certain circumstances, we learn to expect their return, and come to regard them, even when absent, as permanent possibilities of sensation. But this is by no means the prominent idea in the thought of substance. We understand by substance something which persists, not merely when circumstances and groups of sensations remain the same, but when all these are changing. How is the idea of substance in this sense to be accounted for? Association can hardly come into play here, for all appearances are against the permanence. But the strongest objection to this whole group of theories turns on the point already mentioned. What in all they fail to give an account of permanence in an objective system. Association may create a subjective union among ideas which have always been found together, but unquestionably it is a very different kind of bond among phenomena we are in search of when we speak of the permanence of substance. Mr. Mill himself says the matter composing the universe, whatever philosophical theory we hold concerning it, we know by experience to be constant in quantity, never beginning, never ending, only changing its form. The truth is, the principle of the permanence of substance, which lies at the basis of our conception of an object, cannot be manufactured by any process which does not already imply its existence. It is the firm basis of all objective experience, and to subvert it would be to destroy at once the possibility of experience and the possibility of science. To these considerations in support of the substantiality of the material universe, the reply may be pertinently made that we have not yet, in answer to Hume, shown how real knowledge of such a world is possible, or met his arguments in proof that what we call perception of objects is simply a subjective state. Is the proof not overwhelming, it may be said, that what we name sense impressions are simply internal affections of mind, and not the apprehension of any qualities existing in objects without? And have we not daily corroboration of this in the fallacy of the reports which the senses bring, e.g. the bent stick in water? On this much-exploited subject of the fallacy of the senses, it may be sufficient to observe at present that we can only properly speak of fallacy by an implied contrast with the real order of nature, which therefore is assumed to exist and to be at least in part known. Just as the physiological method of speaking of sensations as affections of or images in the brain implies the existence as Prius of that important organ. Everyone is familiar to some extent with the limits to be set to the trustworthiness of the senses, but everyone is also aware that, assuming our knowledge of the objective world to be as well founded as we ordinarily suppose it to be, it is possible from the laws of light, sound, etc., to give an explanation of these alleged deceptions of the senses which clearly enough shows how the appearances arise from which our wrong inferences are drawn. It is because there is an objective system with its fixed laws that these appearances are what they are. Still, the question is not answered as to how we have this knowledge of reality external to ourselves at all. Hume's dilemma is twofold. One, either the object is something truly external to the mind, in which case the mind cannot know it, or even obtain a clue to the fact of its existence since the mind cannot, in the nature of things, overleap its own consciousness, get outside its own ideas. Or two, the object is an idea of the mind, or bundle of perceptions, which is his own hypothesis, in which case there is no external world to know, and our knowledge of it is illusion. It may be of use here to glance briefly first at some of the results brought out by Hume's speculations in the school most opposed to him, that of Reed and Hamilton. 
Reed, as is well known, attacked Hume in his fundamental position that nothing can ever be present to the mind but its own perceptions, point too readily conceded by Kant. This, at least, is Hamilton's interpretation of Reed, and though Reed was not always guarded in his language, yet taking his whole position into account, it seems probable that it is the correct one. Reed meant, in other words, to defend the doctrine of what Hamilton afterwards called natural realism. He did so, as usual, on the ground of common sense, or natural, irresistible conviction. So far, it is a fair reply that Hume never denied the existence of that natural conviction to which Reed appealed. What he did attempt to show was that it was irreconcilable with reason. But beyond this, Reed met Hume on his own ground, and sought with more or less success to prove that this natural belief is not merely instinctive, a product of the sensitive and not of the cogitative part of our nature, but is based on knowledge, i.e. a priori intellectual principles are involved in it. Dr. Thomas Brown, who came after, yielded the whole ground to the skeptic. He grants that the mind is conscious only of its own states, concedes that on the principles of reason the skeptical arguments admit of no reply, and has nothing to oppose to Hume but the invincible persuasion of external reality, which Hume had not thought of disputing. The doctrine of Reed was taken up and developed by Sir William Hamilton, but in developing it Hamilton found so much to alter and correct that in the end the homely Reed would have felt it hard to discover any trace of himself in his critics' recondite speculations. Hamilton's position may be described as an attempt to combine a realistic system, founded on Reed's, with the doctrine of relativity, a canon in some respects to Kant's. Some of the difficulties that pressed on Reed's theory, he endeavors to avoid by his distinction of presentative, representative perception, and of an organic and extra-organic sphere of sense perception. In the perception of a table, e.g., it is not the outward object I directly perceive, but its illuminated retinal image. Impressing the table with my hand, on the contrary, I am directly conscious of the presence of an extended, solid object external to myself. Sense, in both cases, contributes its part, and qualifies and modifies the total impression, hence the relativity of all our perceptions. The counter-developments in the association school, which stand in direct lineage to Hume, need not detain us. The service of this school is the minute attention it has bestowed on the influence of association in all mental processes. But the result arrived at is the same as in Hume, viz. that belief in an external world is a product of association working on sensations which are found to have a certain coherence, constancy in their appearances. Mr. Spencer attempts a synthesis of the opposing views. On the metaphysical side, his theory claims to be one of realism, transfigured realism, but on the psychological side is not unlike Hume's in seeking to show how from the association of vivid and faint states of consciousness we come to form ideas of objects without us. The modern school has devoted itself specially to the investigation of physiological conditions of perception. The value of these labors in their own sphere is very great, but their importance for the solution of the ultimate problem may easily be exaggerated. Looking at the problem from our own standpoint, it may first be conceded that Hume is not altogether wrong in the account he gives of perception, though at every stage, through neglect of the rational element of knowledge, his treatment is marked by oversights. He is right, e.g., in his original concession of the irresistible compulsion laid on mankind 
even on philosophers, to believe in the reality and continued existence of an external world, and in his vivid descriptions of the coherence and constancy of those perceptions which determine the mind to believe in that continued existence. He is right further in his contention that this belief is not the result of reason in the sense of conscious ratiocination. It is the case, as he declares, that our belief in an external world is not the product of conscious or voluntary reflection. Nature takes in hand with the formation of the judgments involved in this belief long before reflective thought awakens, and so thoroughly does she do her work that in the first dawn of self-conscious life we already find ourselves in possession of the knowledge of a world which experience, while correcting many primitive judgments by more mature ones, finds in the main to be reliable. This, however, does not imply, as Hume supposes, that the process is irrational, or originates in the sensitive, as distinguished from the cogitative part of our nature. It only shows that there is an unconscious operation of reason before there is a conscious one. We are here in the region of what Professor James would term the subliminal self. We may not be able to rethink the process, but we are assured that if we could rethink it, it would explain and justify the belief we have in an external world, as well as elucidate the anomalies of what we call the illusions of the senses. Yet again, we found that Hume connects the immediate presentation of the object and perception with the peculiar liveliness of our impressions. See how Mr. Spencer's vivid states. Nor is he altogether wrong in this, though he states the fact inaccurately. The sensation, which is always connected with perception, is of a peculiarly lively nature, as an indefinable quality of vividness, which, as Hume says, distinguishes it from its image in memory and imagination. But he errs, first, in supposing that perception consists merely, or its distinctive character perception consists at all, in this presence of sensation. In reality, as deeper analysis shows, it involves a multitude of judgments through which we define an object to ourselves as existing relations. Into it, there enters likewise a large number of other elements, derived from previous experience, from memory, association, acquired judgments, etc., constituting it in its totality a highly complex fact. But second, Hume inverts the real relation in basing our belief in the object on the vividness of the mental impressions, whereas in truth it is our belief in the reality and presence of the object, or rather our immediate apprehension of it, imparts its forcible character to our perceptions. He errs, third, in attributing the vividness in question to the sense affection alone, and in not perceiving that, from the same cause, a like character of vividness, force, and indivinable assurance belongs to all the mental acts involved. Two points are involved in the criticism of Hume's theory. One, the possibility of even forming the idea of an external world, and two, the possibility of the knowledge of that world as existing. But these two are intimately connected for it is evident that if we can form the idea of an object distinguishable from self, there is no inherent impossibility in the existence of such an object, or in its becoming known by us as existing. Logically, on his principles, Hume ought to say not that the idea of an external world is fictitious, a product of imagination, but that we have no such idea at all. This, however, would be going too far. It is plainly absurd to say that the mind cannot form the idea of an object which it distinguishes from itself and conceives of as part of an external world, when, apart from our constant consciousness of possessing such an idea, 
if the idea did not exist, we could not even be found disputing as to the possibility of knowing such external objects. We come then to the second and main point, viz. the possibility of knowing such objects if they exist. And here we venture to think that the fallacy which runs through Hume's arguments may be summed up in one simple proposition, that to say we have an idea of an object is the same thing as to say that the object is an idea. Is this proposition true? To Hume's mind, it is incontestable. In his language, ideas, objects, ideas of objects, all stand for the same thing, subjective states or combinations of them. But is it the case? The matter may be brought to a very simple test. Leave out of account for the moment the ideas we form of the external world, and would take only the ideas we form of our fellow human beings, of other persons. Does Hume, or the veriest skeptic that ever lived, mean by his denial to the mind of a power of knowing anything beyond its own ideas, to affirm that the belief he entertains in the existence of other minds than his own is also a chimera, a subjective illusion, or a fiction? In consistency, he ought to do this, for it is certain that we know our fellow men in no other way than we know the external world through our ideas of them. But it is very curious to observe that Hume, in practice, never reasons against the existence of other minds as he does against the existence of an external world. To do this would be to reduce his system to too palpable an absurdity. Picture of the philosopher, not the vulgar man sitting down to compose a treatise directed to other minds to convince them of the truth of speculations which implied that no minds but the philosopher's own, if even that existed, would be too much for most people's sense of the ridiculous. Hume, therefore, makes no scruple throughout his work in assuming that there are other minds besides his own, to which he can, in all seriousness, address himself. But if a philosopher can do this without thereby reducing the minds of his readers to ideas, the calmest assurance, in fact, that they are something more, what becomes of the principle that to have the idea of an object means that the object itself is an idea? Or of the assertion that because the mind knows only its own perceptions, it can have no knowledge of beings or objects outside itself? Why, if the mind is capable of knowing real existences beyond itself, in the case of other persons, should the same power not be conceded to it in regard to external nature, is my conviction of the existence of my fellow men one whit stronger or more reasonable than my conviction of the existence of the dog running at my side, the fowls I see strutting in the barnyard, the birds I hear singing in the trees? There remains, on the assumption of the perception of an actual world, the question of the rationale of the act of perception, a subject which involves too many complex psychological elements to be considered in any detail here. To the how of the act of perception, it may be impossible for us wholly to give an answer, but we are not precluded by this from a knowledge of the that, the fact. And in the investigation of that fact, notwithstanding all our investigations of physiological antecedents and conditions, we do not seem to get much beyond what direct consciousness yields us, viz. an immediate awareness in some relation, or what comes to the same thing, under some quality of an object, which we apprehend as existing, and distinguish from ourselves as part of a world, with whose other parts it stands in connection. 
It may be a question whether, from the sense of sight alone, presenting to us, as Hume would say, colored points disposed in a certain manner, we could attain to that consciousness of an external, solid, and extended world, to which, in fact, we do attain through the combination of sight, the sense of touch, and experience of muscular resistance. It is not a question that, when the act of perception is fully analyzed, it is found, as already said, to involve many elements and factors, some of them primitive, many acquired, others results of association, perhaps of inheritance, most of them probably interpretations of the sense accompaniments of perception, muscular feelings, e.g., as the indices of space relations and judging of distances, etc., all of which mental science cannot too narrowly investigate. But the broad fact remains that through all we reach the apprehension of a world of objects which increasing experience and scientific investigation of its laws warrant us in regarding as actually, permanently, and independently of our minds existing. When all is said, it must be granted that an ultimate inexplicability attaches to this act in which, under sense conditions, a world which is not ourselves enters as a real factor into our knowledge. How is this possible? Only, it may be replied, on the hypothesis that the distinction between ourselves who know and the world we know is not, after all, final, that there is a deeper ground, an ultimate unity, that the universe, including ourselves, is a single system, the parts of which stand in reciprocal relation to the spiritual principle on which, in the last resort, the whole depends. Here, however, we enter a transcendental region which leaves Hume far behind, and into which, in this connection, we need not travel further. The conclusions we have reached may be summed up in three propositions, which, we take it, represent positions that can never finally be extruded from philosophy. One, the first, which is the truth of idealism, is that the universe, however construed, can never be divorced from intelligence or thought. It is an intelligible system, is constituted through intelligence, exists for intelligence. Its ultimate principle can only be an understanding akin in nature to our own. Two, the second, which is the truth of realism, is that the universe, whatever it may be, is something actual and independent of man's individual consciousness. It is as much another's as mine, and as real for him as for me. It appears in our consciousness, but it is more than our consciousness. Its reality is not our knowledge of it, whatever may be its relations to knowledge absolutely. This is the point in which the school of read is impregnable, and in maintaining which it did its peculiar service. Three, the third, which is the truth of relativity, is that the universe we know is yet known to us under the conditions and limitations that belong to human consciousness, and arrayed in the sense clothing that such consciousness gives it. Here comes in the mind's own contribution to the world as it knows it, the brightness of light, the gaiety of color, the melody of sound, the fragrance of odors, the lights of the palate, the robing of sensation generally, which is the principal source of its delight and charm to the sentient being. Thus, after all, Locke's distinction of primary and secondary qualities is vindicated, though on a different ground from that on which he placed it. End of chapter 8